So we are thinking today about a connected community from Acts chapter 2. Can we maybe... There we go. And um, we're going to look at this. What is the vision of a connected community? Uh, What's the reality? And then how do we make it work? So those are the three points we're making. And, uh, and here's the vision, right, um, of a deeply connected church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. So the context of this is uh, Pentecost has just happened. The gift, the Holy Spirit, God has showed up uh, in the early church. Jesus has died. He's uh, risen again. It's 40 days after his resurrection. He's appeared to a bunch of people, and these illiterate fishermen and tradesmen and their hangers-on have gone from fearing that they're going to be imprisoned and killed for their faith and that, that the whole kind of enterprise of following Jesus was a disaster. They've now, the, God has showed up, poured out His Spirit on them, and it's changed their lives, and it's changing Jerusalem. Um, and thousands are, are coming to embrace Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And, um, this, and so Acts 2 tells a bit of this story. And then the last bit of Acts 2 gives us a a glimpse into what was going on in their life as a community. And we see this picture of just deep, deep, deep connection. And it's profoundly challenging uh, for us in our fragmented, atomized, individualistic worlds. So here's what characterizes them. They have a common devotion This is at the center of everything that happens, right? They devoted themselves. Um, It's like, it's very powerful. Like, you're not going to get a deeply connected community unless it's built on a common devotion. And you see this, for example, in footy clubs, whether it's uh, rugby league uh, or, um, you know, proper sport, AFL, uh, or rugby union, which used to be the game they played in heaven until Australian rugby uh, union bosses messed it up. Um, but you see the fanatic, the thing that unites people, right? Um, like, like in Melbourne, I don't know if you follow the AFL, Collingwood has one of the most loyal uh, support base. People are fanatical Collingwood supporters. Uh, and it doesn't really work this way in Sydney. You're not as devoted to your sports teams here, I don't think. But living in Melbourne for years, people are devoted to this thing, you know, this, this sports team, and they'll, it's their whole lives, and they give so much to this thing of... And that's what, that's what builds the connections, right? You know, Collingwood supporters would go in and they'd make their big banners that were, you know, nine times out of ten misspelt, and they'd, sh- you know, because they can't really spell in Collingwood. Um, and... Uh, there we go. Just, I thought that was quite funny, really. As a Hawthorne supporter, you know, well, on this side of the arrow, of course we can spell, you know. Um, there we go. So as a church, right, as this community, there was this common devotion. That's what united them. It was not a devotion to being a club, being a book club, being a support group. It was this devotion to this teaching of the apostles that Jesus that in Jesus is all the hopes and promises of Israel had come to be fulfilled. All the promises of Yahweh, the creator God, were fulfilled. That the promise of the Holy Spirit was fulfilled. That God was doing something new in the world, creating a new humanity in Christ. That's what they were devoted to, this grand, wonderful, extraordinary story. Uh, And that's what united them. So, I mean, for us, right, if we want to build a connected community... Uh, it's not going to happen by being devoted to 
um, our own individual well-being. Like, that's important, right? And, and for sure, we all come here at one level because of what we can get out of it, because of the way it helps us. And we all want to flourish. We all want to thrive. We get that. But actually, what we really want more than that is a devotion that is based on this grand story, this adventure of Jesus. Because that's where the power and the unity lies. That's where the power for inclusion lies. Because anyone who wants to align to Jesus and be commonly and similarly devoted to him and to this adventure he calls us on, anyone who's on that, in that path can be a part of this community and be deeply connected, irrespective of ethnicity, criminal background, current work choices. You know, like anyone who wants to follow Jesus can come in and be part of that. So that's the essence of it. But then in addition to this common devotion, um, there's some, some other extraordinary things that are going on here, right? They, they're devoted to the teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So they're these spiritual disciplines that shape their community. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's important for us, that our devotion actually expresses itself. Our devotion to Jesus expresses itself horizontally in, in our, a life that is transformed, breaking bread, so sharing, hospitality, eating. There's a deep connectedness um, around each other. They were together and had everything in common, um, which, you know, that doesn't actually mean the abandonment of private property at all, because you see later on in Acts, people still had property and real estate they held. But what it talks about, what the picture here is profound interdependence, uh, profound interdependence that is expressed economically. Um, so, so they looked after each other. Now, I don't know what your experience of being looked after by your extended family is like. Um, in my Jewish uh, family, and one of the reasons, I, one of the things that sometimes causes me confusion in terms of relating to people who've been born and bred sort of white Anglo-Australians, is in the Jewish community, you just, it's a very good thing to look after each other economically. So you absolutely, it's about creating family capital, passing on wealth to the family, making sure that you're setting each other up. It's about employing each other, looking after everybody in your kinship group, in your uh, religious network, in the synagogue. Like, that's just, you look after each other, right? Uh, and, and actually, that is an important thing that, as Anglicans, because as Anglicans in a place like Sydney, we were the establishment, right? You, you sort of, you didn't need to do that because simply being white and Anglican and going to a private school meant that was your network and your networks controlled all the levers of power in a city like ours. But that's no longer the case. And increasingly for God's people to work together, we need to build deeper levels of interdependence. Um, and then, of course, the challenge is not just interdependence here in Roselle, but what would that look like to think about interdependence with, uh, with a, the broader church around the city of Sydney or even globally? Where, you know, so there's, there's lots of things to think about. But certainly in this community, supporting each other, sharing each other's lives, doing life together in a way that is far greater than sharing an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, right? Like, this is awesome. Don't get me wrong. I actually really love hanging out with everyone. But actually, a deeply connected church um, is connected way beyond the Sunday morning. It's connected economically. 
Um, but they met together in the temple courts, so they're meeting in, in public, in large public gatherings. They haven't given up, given up their Jewishness. And then they're breaking bread in their homes, and they eat together with glad and sincere hearts. So there's a, a radical um, hospitality. So if, if, if as we keep going, if we want to build a deeply connected church, part of what we need to do is weave together patterns of hospitality and, and sharing life. And that's, you know, here we have restaurants and coffee shops where we do that, right? You go, let's, let's meet for a coffee. And that's awesome. But there is still something a little deeper about actually having someone in your home. And I know for some of us, we struggle with that for all kinds of reasons. Our homes are very small. We're really busy. Uh, I know people who are deeply committed, like seriously, to never having anyone in their homes. Like it's, it's just too hard. I just can't do it. And at one level, that's okay it is okay, and I understand that. But, but actually, there is something about just having people in your home, and they get a glimpse, and, and it doesn't have to be perfect. And it's okay if you've got piles of unfolded laundry in the corner because you're in an apartment and it's not big enough to hide it all. Just give your guests an opportunity to help fold the laundry with you, you know, over dessert. Um, I don't know. You know what I mean? So, because what matters is the hospitality, the connection. The other thing that goes to building a connected community is, um, is frequency of connection. Like, just practically speaking, uh, research on what helps people feel connected and builds a, a sense of community um, are, are three things. This has come out a bunch of um, uh, research that's not particularly religious, it just is, and it's... Um, what you want, what you've got to think about is frequency of connection um, and uh, spontaneity of connection. Spontane I think I've, I'm too, that's misspelled. And, uh, and the, yep. Just want to say I do the jokes here, people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Jeez, I feel like a philistine. I've been slain by the jawbone of an ass. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Channeling the spirit of Collingwood. Thanks, Megan. Yeah. So um, frequency means if you really want to feel deeply connected into this church. Uh, research says you need, to, you, need to have, you need to connect with people from the church uh, three times a week, three or four times a week. It's just the way it is. Um, and that's hard to do. But the, the more deeply connected you are, the more you're going to build those, you know, and it doesn't have to be you know, three church services a week, but some kind of touch point three or four times a week uh, to start feeling really deeply connected. And along with that is um, spontaneity, uh, misspelt as it is, um, that is, there is, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there is a, if your times with people feel very different, if you've got to organize a, people are going to come over, you can organize a dinner party, you've got to get your diaries out, and you've got to plan it like six weeks in advance, right? And then you all come together, and that's great, but that's very different to bumping into someone on the street and just having a 10-minute chat on the street or uh, hanging out after church and just going, oh, why don't we just go out and grab some lunch? The, the spontaneous interactions actually feel different. And the, the psychologists tell us that makes us feel far more connected than when you've got to organize something. Which is why we're all going to be back working in offices 
and the working from home thing will, will be, a, it's always going to be blended because, because when you're working from home on Zoom, you all know this, you can't, you actually can't spontaneously connect on Zoom. You've got to organize it, you've got to plan it, you've both got to be there. In an office environment, you just walk up and you, you go and get a drink or a coffee and you bump into someone and you have a chat. And that's what creates a deep sense of connection. And that's true for us. So one of the wonderful things now about where we are is you can walk around and just bump into people. Uh, there's a family here, part of our church, who aren't here this morning, so I'll tell their story. Uh, at least one of the reasons they're here is a few years ago, I bumped into one of them in the supermarket down in Belmain, and they were having a meltdown, and life was very hard, and they'd had a kid, and they were struggling to, how do I make life work with kids? And they'd been trying to find a church, and it was really very hard. And we, I bumped into the mum down at, the, at Woolies in Belmain, and uh, she had a bit of a meltdown, and a, bit of, a few tears in the aisle, and we just chatted for 15 minutes standing in the aisle at Woolworths. And, uh, you know, four years later, they're a key, deeply connected part of our community, right? Because it's just bumping into each other. Now, if you don't live locally where you bump into each other, you've got to be a little more creative in that, and, and we can make sort of Sundays a hub and so on, but, but that helps, right? Um, and so the proximity thing is um, either relational, genetic, or geographic proximity is what matters, right? Like actually being together and connecting in a way that, that allows you just to bump into each other is really significant. So just super practical stuff. Uh, being a little intentional about that. Um, we don't all have to live in the 2039 postcode, as, as good as that would be. Could probably go to 2040 or 2041 as well, but you know. Yeah, but just trying to figure that out practically matters. And, and then the, the reality is, when you look at this, is it's, it's a powerful experience of God, right? Like you don't, people are, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So when we as a community are connecting deeply with God and connecting deeply with each other, that is powerfully, profoundly attractive to people because it, it makes visible in front of people the wonderful story of Jesus, unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, grace, a new humanity, and equality of being irrespective of gender and intellectual ability and age and all that good stuff. So we live it out in front of people and, and, and we're meant to be a working model of, uh, of heaven. And when people taste and see that, that's, that's meant to be deeply, deeply attractive. That's the vision. So what's the reality? <laughs> What's the reality of church? Well, off, one, of the, one of the most important things to grapple with, right, um, is, uh, I can, because <laughs> you might be sitting here, and, and even as I, well, you are sitting here, you might be thinking to yourself, as I talk about this, you go, oh, that's not been my experience of church. Like, it's actually quite a lonely place. Maybe you're thinking, I've been really deeply let down by people in church. Maybe, the, maybe instead of economic independence, you've, you've actually been ripped off by people in church. I can point you to many people who have gone into business with fellow Christians and discovered at that very great cost that it, it might have cost them their entire life savings and their career because the person they went into business with was actually just a selfish crook 
but they were hiding in church. Or maybe they were Christians, but they were just really lousy business people. And so that can happen, and maybe you're like, oh, gee, this is, you know. I mean, some of my loneliest moments have been in church, right? Um, we, we have an ability to, to, to do great damage to each other. We have an ability to import into the church all the very worst bits of our consumer culture. So, um, and that's deeply disappointing. You, you may be someone who's, who's been abused by someone in the church. There's all sorts of things that go wrong. And, and this is what happens, right? Um, we, we come to church with high hopes of connection because we are we're social beings and we, it doesn't take long. For me to start talking about being a connected church and casting this vision, there's something in all of us, isn't there, that goes, yes, I really, really want that. But it doesn't take long for you to actually go, I want it, but I also don't want it. It's incredibly attractive, but actually quite scary as well. And it won't take you long in this community until you find it to be disappointing. Uh, you, you know, you won't, if you're in this church for longer than a couple of weeks, you, you may even discover that I'm disappointing uh, as a human being, as a pastor. I just am, because this side of heaven, I'm, you know, I'm not Jesus. I will one day be transformed to be like him, but I'm not. So what do we do with our disappointments with each other? Um, and it's not that the Bible is naive to this. Um, the, the early church, if you keep reading through Acts, it doesn't take long before they have all kinds of great difficulties emerge. And uh, so I just picked this passage. There are many. But look at this in the book of Ephesians. This is a couple of decades on from the book of Acts. And the church is in full flight, and it's full of wonderful, glorious things. They're changing the world. People are coming to know Jesus. It's, it's, churches are being planted all over the Roman Empire. But in every church that exists, there are problems and sin and brokenness and messed up relationships. So this, after this wonderful first few chapters in Ephesians, this high and brilliant vision of what church is, um, uh, Paul writes this to the Christians in Ephesus, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. You only tell someone to get rid of something if they have it. It would be no point telling me to get rid of my billions of dollars. I do not have it. The early church had bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, and lots of different kinds of malice. Right? That's not, and what do you do with that? Well, Paul says, here's a suggestion, people. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How do you deal with your disappointment? You're kind, you're compassionate, and you forgive each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. It always seems to me that within our community, uh, I... I cannot hold on to unforgiveness. I, I, who am I to not forgive you, no matter what you've done for me, if God could forgive me in Christ? Like that's, This is the secret source of the Christian community. We have a great vision, and then you discover the reality. We're pretty disappointing. We hurt each other. But right at the center of making a connected community work is this incredible thing of forgiveness. 
Now, those of you who've been married a while, more than maybe half an hour, you will realize that uh, forgiveness is absolutely, critically, centrally important to any deep relationship of connection. Any. Any. So we have to, so, you know, and, and the, the thing that empowers us to forgive each other is, is that, that Christ, in Christ, God has forgiven me. So if he's forgiven me, who am I not to forgive you? And then the practical thing, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And isn't this one of the greatest verses ever? And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. See, how we build a deeply connected community, we'll forgive each other. Like, here's what we want to be. Here's what I want you to be. Here's what you are. (laughs) But I forgive you. And together we're going to walk in the way of love. Here's what you want me to be. Here's what I am. Well, I'm simply giving you many opportunities to learn forgiveness. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, And then to learn to walk in the way of love. Right? Uh, which is wonderful. And, and we, we love because he first loved us. Now, this can be very hard in terms of what do we do with disappointment. Um, it can be very hard. And, it's, and the, the, the challenge can come not just, um, not just because of us, but, but if you imagine here's the church, right? I and mean, we're just going to make this, well, no, we're not going to do that. I'm going to say for the moment, the church is a amorphous, this is a, a thing here, the church, right? And here is you. And uh, you're kind of sad and happy all at the same time. And you're drawn to church, right? You want to be part of it. We are, we are social beings, we're social creatures, God is at work. You're drawn into the church, right? And you go, yeah, man, I love this church. It's awesome. It's fantastic preaching's brilliant, the music's awesome, everyone's so interested in me, everyone's so fascinating, and they promise to be economically interdependent, so I don't need job seeker anymore, Um, they're going to look after me in my old age, we're going to share raising our kids together, it is going to be just heaven on earth, yes, and then you come in and you discover us as we are. So what do you do when you discover us as we are? Well, the problem with us, right, is no one comes to church by themselves. What they do is they come to church with their entire past trailing along behind them, right? And in this past are countless other experiences of people, family of origin, caregivers, uh, you name it, they're there. I come to church bringing with me all the baggage that I've got from behind me, 20, 30, 40, 70 years, the primal imprinting of relationships that I had as a young kid before, you know, in those early years, ages one to seven. It's not dissimilar to marriage, right? Um, there's a truism in marriage and family therapy that whenever you, uh, that you are, as a couple, you are never in alone in bed. You are always in bed with your entire family. Now, that's a terrifying thought, but it's that thing that in any relationship, we bring into the relationship all the stuff we've got in the past. Now, here's two things that we tend to do, two ways of dealing with disappointment that tend to shape us. One way is I get disappointed, 
So I pursue you even harder. I, I, I want to, and, and often this can be in the form of fighting. Uh, it's increased uh, bids for connection. Okay, so you come to church and, uh, and then people are disappointing. So what do you do? You, you, you pursue them even more. You, you, you make all kinds of bids for connection and maybe the, this becomes a form of criticism because often in families, you know, we, we can actually want to establish a relational connection and the way we do that is paradoxically by criticizing. That's the adult form of chucking a tantrum. So what does a kid do who's two or three and they're stressed and distressed and maybe mum and dad aren't paying them much attention, so, so they're disappointed with mum and dad, so I, I throw a tantrum in order to get mum and dad's attention. It's a proximity-seeking strategy. I go, look at me, give me some attention, show me some love. And on the, you know, Woolworths ground, slamming your feet, and, and of course... The, it gets attention, but it's not a brilliant strategy long-term for getting love from, from adults. But people do that, so I get disappointed, so I attack. Oh, you're never good enough. And, and we've all, we all know those people in our lives where nothing is ever good enough for them. And really all they're saying is, I desperately want to connect, but I don't know how to deal with my feelings of disappointment and hurt and potential loneliness. So, so I'll, I'll attack, and I'll, I'll tell you you're not good enough, and I'll be critical, and I'll do all kinds of weird stuff. Okay, so that's one. Th and that is shaped in us from a very early age. And, and that may be you, and that's okay. We just need to name it and own it. and Ah, oh, this is what I'm doing. Ah, oh, this is what Sansa's doing. Under every attack is actually a bid for connection. And because we're made for that. We just want to be loved. And it's terrifying when, when your family lets you down. It's terrifying. So we're, t we're full of terror and we attack. What do you think the other option, what's the other response to disappointment from family or caregivers? If one is fight and attack and increased bids for connection, what do you reckon the other one might be? Yeah, retreat. So I distance myself. Um, and you go, yeah, I, I just knew it would be like this. No one's ever there for me. Uh, there's no much point. And, uh, and, and, and this can work in all sorts of ways. People can come in initially and be very keen and excited. And then, you know what? Um, the slightest hint of someone letting them down. Oh, well, you know, they, didn't, they said they'd phone me during the week or text me and they didn't. Oh, there we go. It's the same old and I shouldn't expect too much of people. So then you just slowly disengage. Sneak in, sit up the back, sit down the front. Keep your heart closed because you know people are just going to let you down. <laughs> so that's the other strategy that we have, right? And so in any family, you've got these dynamics. In any church family, you've got these dynamics working out. Now, the goal of a healthy relationship is to be able to have our needs for connectedness met while still being separate. That's what you see in Acts 2. So you've got to calm the terror. You've got to honestly face the disappointments. You need some help processing your patterns of relating, the kind of the models in your head. Um, because really being disappointed by a local church isn't an existential threat. Mostly we can deal with it. We can just, yeah, yeah, it's just okay. Because in Jesus Christ we can see each other honestly and we can find healing for these dynamics and a new way of walking in the way of love. So... Um, you know, that's it. I mean, for me, um, 
it's very exciting because here's the other paradox. Church becomes a, a way of profound healing because if we really want to make it work, it actually, church actually helps us, um, helps us find healing from these dynamics and find new ways of being in a community because we're walking in the way of love. Um, and, and perfectly, to be perfectly honest, not that I ever am, but if you've been around this a while, you'll see these dynamics working out in my own engagement with this church, right? Like, it's just the way it is. Um, so, you, but you go, no, you hang in there, you, you, you calm down. <sighs> okay, we're just us. And God is here, and let's work it out together. Because the stakes are high, and it's very healing when you stick around. Um, you know, my family of origin were very good at distancing themselves. Oh, you were here, now you're not. Uh, but actually, that's not a good way to be. Uh, so that's, that's where we're at. That's the, the reality. And, and where that comes from is the, is, is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of Jesus at work in our lives. And knowing that we can walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, there lies the healing and the power to be different. So I'm going to pause, I'm going to pray, then we're going to take some questions. Lord God, um, building a connected community is a wonderfully exciting and yet terrifying thing. Uh, I want to confess that I am caught up in these dynamics of fight or flight, of, uh, of, of giving voice to my disappointment um, by attacking people or demanding too much of people uh, or by running away and just being emotionally and uh, spiritually unavailable because it's all too hard. Uh, so, Lord, forgive me, forgive us when we have failed to walk in the way of love. And uh, thank you for this season we're in as a church and help us actually put this into practice day by day, week by week, moment by moment. And we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to, maybe Liz, do you want to take the handheld mic around and I'll answer? And Zoom, remember you can put it in your chat column if you've got any questions and Jono will pass them on to us. Do we have any questions from the room? Come on, we've set up the whole mic. Someone's got yeah. to have a question. No, it's okay. Just give them no, time. Right. They'll be right or not. Anything from you, Zoom? Very disappointing, really, people. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, take the mic. We want, we want comments like that recorded. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll start off. Just to say, that was a great sermon, oh, and, you know, not really a question so much as a statement, but, and as a, as a, you know, great sermon really spoke to me, oh, and thanks. certainly so many different angles there, and, yeah. and, you know, it's nice to sort of have a good biblical solid background in what you're talking about but also you've got some really good present day scenarios and stuff there in amongst it so it was really really palatable yeah. oh, that's you know? awesome. so yeah really really good that's and great probably speak for a few there but yeah thank thanks you. keelan thank you keelan I'm open to more comments like that as well <laughs> but seriously if there are questions because one of the problems with this way of communicating is you can kind of put a lot a lot of stuff out and I don't know if it's landed or if I've confused people or if you want to take something up and explore it going down a different path. Really happy to do that. Yeah. Uh, let's go. Kimberly. Um, you were saying that like people disappoint us. Yeah. Do you, 
do you think we should expect less of other people? Do you think we expect too much of other people? Oh, do we ex that's a really good question. Uh, the other thing I generally say in, uh, in uh, marriage prep is the key to a long-lasting marriage is low expectations. I'm joking when I say that. But it's also sort of true. There's a weird thing, isn't there, in life. I, I, ex I, I am hardwired to expect you to behave like Jesus towards me. Like we actually are hardwired to want and expect love and safety and all of that stuff. And we should expect that. We should long for that and believe for that and pray for that and look for that. But at the same, and that's what the Bible says, but at the same time, we've got to be brutally realistic that none of us, including ourselves, ever actually lives out perfectly that, that true vision of who we are. So, uh, you see, I, and I think here's, the, here's, what, here's how, you, how this works, practically. You can, if what you are doing is demanding that the other person be perfect so that you feel okay about yourself. I can relate to you as long as you don't disappoint me, as long as you don't trigger any of these things in me. It it's actually comes from a place of deep demanding this on yourself and insecurity and inability to tolerate disappointment in others, right? Um, I mean, you see this with, in our parenting. You, you know, we... We have these high visions that you see parents who are chronically disappointed in their kids but can never articulate it. So I have these great expectations, but you know, this is who I've got, you know, yeah. I mean, but the kid's thinking that about you as well, right? Like, let's be honest. Um, ah. <laughs> um, but the kid didn't make us, we made the kid, so we bear more responsibility than the kid does, right? But we do that with each other. So there can be a demandingness. We dress it up in high expectations, but actually there's an emotional demandingness that says, I need you to be perfect for me. Uh, emotional maturity says, I can love, I don't need you to be perfect for me because God is perfect for me. I'm okay with that. And if and when you let me down, I'm still okay with that because my life and security and safety doesn't depend on you being perfect. So I think in Jesus, there's a way to, to expect great things from each other. As C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. We're extraordinary beings, but then, but then not demand that the other person be perfect and, and, and attack them if they're not or leave them if they're not. You go, okay, this is who you are. And, and you can do better, we can do better, but no matter what happens, actually, I am completely safe and secure in the love of God. Does that make sense? Is that at all helpful? Yeah, it's easy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Mark, I don't mean to throw the bad one at you, but how do you make people feel safe and secure that have been abused by church authorities? Uh yeah. Geesh. Yeah, thanks for that, Carl. <laughs> it's the obvious question in our context, right? Um, ah, I mean, the obvious answer at one level is to say, we have a zero tolerance for abuse in this community. I can't, I can't, 
I, we are not responsible for your past experience of hurt and damage from the church, but what we can say is we can build a community that actually is safe, that can be part of your healing going forward. So uh, the best analogy I've come up with uh, in, in terms of this kind of healing is um, uh, if, if you've grown up with, with absent parents, emotionally unavailable parents, what you need to do is actually to be fully functioning as an adult yourself is you almost need to, you need to be reparented. You need to have healthy experiences in adulthood with safe caregivers where you can work out on them some of the baggage from your past. And that's what church can be. So I actually think with abuse and so on, I think that's paradoxically the greatest spiritual and emotional healing for previous, for people who are victims or survivors of abuse at the hands of the church, comes from being part of a healthy church where they can work out and work on those issues in a healthy way. But it's hard. Um, yeah. And that's on us, right? So... Um, Yeah, that I've been abused by someone in the church in the past doesn't mean that, that churches are always bad. Uh, it's the same like with men, like so many women we know are assaulted by men in their growing up. That doesn't mean men per se are bad or sex is bad or relationships like that are bad. It just means, boy, there's a lot of evil in the world and we all need to work hard to avoid that and find healing from that. But you can't. You won't find the healing, I don't think you find the healing by avoiding the thing. You find healing by moving towards the thing in a safe way. So, I mean, that's complex. So I'd say the greatest, how do you, if you've been sexually assaulted as a kid, right, and your sexuality is really messed up, the, with, a, with a whole bunch of support, the most powerful context for growth and healing is actually in your sexual relationship in a long-term, like deeply committed marriage with the help of a community of support around you. Like, that's where you'll find the deepest healing. And I would say that spiritually in the church as well. Come back to me, anyone, if you want, because this opens up a whole can of... And I say that as someone who has walked that particular path. Um, yeah. I also think, while we're on it, and what's on view in these passages, by the way, is local communities where we're face-to-face. -face. So the church, in my mind, and biblically, as an institution, like as a denomination, doesn't, it's not a theological entity. I don't think it exists. In, because you can't be in relationship with people who simply are licensed to use a similar piece of property on the other side of the city. Because that's all Anglican. Like the established church, we're really... A, a property franchise business where groups of people meet in this property that is centrally held. And, and that's good. I'm, that, that's a good model. But, but, but actually emotionally and spiritually, what's on view is us where you can actually see each other and pray with each other and talk to each other, which is very different from the church as an institution.